For a lot of these women, actually, it it came down to knowledge more than anything, I think. And they wanted to contribute to the scientific understandings of what, what the terrain is like, even just the mundane, like, what do they... This is the Hardcore Humanities Podcast, plus our researcher recommendations. In each episode, I'll be chatting to a researcher from one of the UK's best universities. We'll discuss their work in any topic within the humanities. And at the end of each episode, our researcher will give us some recommendations for further reading. Links to which can be found on the Hardcore Humanities website and social media. I'm Jamie. And you are welcome to the podcast. Hello, 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 everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by Hannah Westwick. Now, Hannah is a historian from Oxford University. She has a bachelor degree in history from York University, but she's currently studying for her master's in history at Oxford. Now, Hannah's work explores women travellers in the 18th and 19th century, and more specifically, how that feeds into both travel literature and literature more broadly. So, Hannah, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Welcome. No, thank you for having me. It's an honour. So, tell us how you came to be interested in this subject of women travellers in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah, no problem. So this is for an independent 10,000 word project that Oxford asks us to do in a really tight turnaround time. So we have about three weeks to come up with an idea how it's going to be viable in 10,000 words. And more importantly, how my topic or my kind of module was how it could inform opinions of or interactions with the self and selfhood. So I want to do this with literature because I come from a literature background. And I was really interested in how these women, when they travel, are kind of experiencing a different sense of self and writing in a different way, more importantly, than how they do at home. And I think this comes across particularly the greater the geographical distance to England and to their home societies. They kind of experiment and explore with different assets or facets of the self. So they kind of lean into maybe masculine authorial tones. They picture themselves somewhat as like a heroine. Sorry, uh, yeah, and uh, um, kind of how they are thinking of themselves in completely different ways, often with the kind of colonial overtones that come across in that they kind of view themselves often, one of the women say, as a white queen, um, because the travel places that I look at are Africa and Asia. So there is obviously that, that problem and that dilemma, but I was interested in how when they go out to these places that they've never seen before and no other woman writer has dared to go so far, because um, I'm talking, you know, about 1750s when they start exploring, they are dealing with certain problems and ideas that their male travel counterparts just wouldn't have came across. So what to wear? Are the corsets too tight? Are they too hot? Are they fainting? And all these kind of things. So I got really interested in what it is that they do when they travel and more importantly, how they write about it and view themselves as these travellers. Okay, great. And um, why was it important to you to focus your studies on women? Okay, yeah, this is a question I get asked quite a lot. And I think 
for this project specifically, why women were important is because the scholarship is, you know, it's not hard to find really good in-depth analytical accounts of male explorers and male travellers. And that's all kind of very well done. And we, we have a consensus there. For the women, when they travel or when they write about it, it's quite few and far between in historiography. So as a historian, we always want to be adding to that collective knowledge and kind of moving forward in terms of what we know about how this, you know, kind of connects to the wider framework. So I thought I'd wanted to add something that is original and it is different and do some proper independent work, which kind of was the main task of this module was to do something that's not been done. So I guess women was the obvious choice because they are few and far between and not a lot has been written about them. Okay, great. So let's get into the travels themselves. Where were the women going and what kind of stories do they tell? So I've looked at four women um, in this project from about 1770 to 1900. Um, two of them go to Africa and two of them go to just Asia more broadly. They travel through lots of um, different countries, India, Sri Lanka, um, places like that. So they, they are going quite far away but I think what is important to note at this time is there was a British presence there and there were kind of these countries were being dominated and there were conquering armies going before these women so in many ways it is completely different and it is outside of you know normal life for them but in other ways I think what's not been picked up on the historiography and what I tried to talk about was how it is in some ways domestic because they are traveling behind these armies and it's almost a bit safe now. So they're not really outside of, you know, completely on their own. Right. And did the women just stick to the colonies of Britain? Or would a British woman go to, say, a French or a, a Dutch colony? Or did they just stick to British colonies? So one of the women that I talk about, Mary Kingsley, she's probably one of the most famous um, explorers. And she did go in through a lot of the French countries as well but she does often comment that how she prefers to stick in the British um, colonized areas and she's wants to comment on them much more for the audience at home because these accounts are published and they are sold so I think it's important to remember that the readership is almost kind of dominating and telling these women where they can go because the British readers they're writing in English only really want to know about British colonies so I wonder if there was something in that that had they been publishing for a French audience they may or Dutch audience they may have gone um, to different places. Right and is it accurate to say that there was a growth in women travellers during this time and if so why do you think that was what was it about society what was it about this period that enabled that to happen? Yeah absolutely there was a growth um, from one of the earliest accounts we have Lady Mary Wortley Montague and she travels pre-1750 and she travels with her husband and she produces what are now the infamous infamous the infamous embassy letters and she does so and she says um that the ladies are able to travel better than the lords because when the lords go out they want to be statesmen and they want to kind of mix with other nobles or aristocratic men out there they don't they're not interested in the humdrum everyday mundane activities of the village people so they don't actually travel into the, these countries they almost view it at a surface level and she argues that the women can see the wood within the trees which is a really interesting kind of um way to think about it and to look at it and so these women 
well, there's you know enough accounts to say oh this mountain is this tall and you can reach it or you can reach the tip by this eight hour track and it's through these conditions there's not any information about what do the women out there do what do they wear what are their sartorial choices you know how do they spend their days what's is there any kind of like practices or you know always like coming back to things that women would be interested in and these women go out there and pick up on these practices that women might look at like what do they wear what types of fabric are they clothing themselves do they also wear french stays and corsets or do they wear something different and so i think because they go with a different almost lens and a different set of binoculars it grows because women want to know how other women live or how other children are raised and things like that so when they're kind of writing for a specific audience and they're getting that very well received um, from the very start if they're mentioning like oh these women set their hair with this powder or they've never even they don't have looking glasses which are mirrors and you know things like that they use other options or other objects then I think that explains the growth because as more women read more women wanted to know about other women and then these British travellers provided that kind of information I guess. Right and who was this target audience that you've mentioned a couple of times who were these travel literatures targeting and who was buying it who was on the other side was that target landing so for the male travelers they were writing a lot for academic national kind of the national geographic society or somebody like that who is mainly made up of people who read it um who are like doctors lawyers solicitors bankers maybe and they read that in their spare time not quite so much as like escapism or fiction, but just to provide themselves being well-rounded men, well-rounded individuals. Often the ones whose previous, you know, forefathers would have gone on things like the Grand Tour around Europe, who are now in more mundane jobs and have to resort to maybe reading about these things. For the women, in a lot of their dedications and the prefaces in these books, they say that they're just writing for other women. They're just wanting to provide, you know, a kind of, a bit of a difference to reading normal novels or histories or other kind of appropriate and accessible literature for women because I think it was maybe sometimes getting a bit stagnant if you're reading the same thing day in and day out and then there's this account that comes out about a woman who's gone out to Africa that's completely different and so it would be obviously educated elite women but by the end of the period 1900 that's quite a lot of women and, you know, obviously you didn't have to read it to know about it. You could hear by word of mouth. You may have one person who can read and tell you about it and then information filters through. So I, mainly the target audience for the men would be people who took it seriously, they're ethnographers, they're scientists in their day-to-day life and they want to know about the science that's going on elsewhere. But for the women, I think it's a completely different audience and they're going for different things. And it's just other educated women who are confined by marriage and confined by children and can't explore for themselves but maybe have that interest in it. And did that audience change at all as the decades passed? I know you mentioned there that there were more educated women by 1900 um, but I guess there were just more literate women in general within the population. Did, did that audience grow with that? Yeah I think it must have done and also I think we can also talk about children in this as well. Children being given literature as their own or it being you know viewed appropriate that children should maybe read um, foreign accounts or kind of just read something else to keep them occupied in a way that we kind of saw the period move along so children are not necessarily 
there's a, there is a time for childhood and there's a time for things like children reading. So I guess the audience changed to also in, incorporate children and people and you know people like that who had free time as they were less bound by work. And did the goings on in Europe affect the travels of these women? I know you said that you focus on Africa and Asia, but the time period that you study, 1750 to 1900, at least at the start of that period, my mind immediately runs through various European conflicts. You have the Seven Years' War, you have the French Revolution, you have the American Revolution, although, of course, that was in America, it impacted uh, Europe. You also, of course, have the Napoleonic Wars. Did any of this make an impact on the women travellers, even if they were going further afield? I think it would have done, yeah. And I think certainly with um, the revolutions that kind of bring home, nowhere is kind of free from you know, these problems with war or the effects of it. And I think, well, for instance, Mary Kingsley in her preface, she says, I would have gone, I can't remember now um, where it is she said she would have gone, but unfortunately she said, there's too much trouble, I can't go there. And I think that at that point there was a civil war or some kind of thing going on. So they are in many ways bound by what's happening within Europe and being able to comment on certain things. Because if there's, you know, fighting of territory between, like say, the British and the French in Africa and who should have a certain part they obviously can't really get caught up in that. So even if they don't mention it explicitly, perhaps when we look at the contents page and the journeys that they do take or the maps, maybe they've covered it in such a way that it was always never an issue, but it was definitely there and that shaped their travels. Right. I guess that hasn't changed in the modern day. Conflict and safety still impacts Mm -hmm. where you're likely to travel to. Um, Now, going back over to, to Africa and Asia and these different destinations, how did the... Uh, populations there greet these travelers because there are some parts not only of Asia and Africa but of course all over the world where even today a solo woman traveler would not be safe to go Um, so how did the populations in these different destinations welcome greet or maybe not welcome uh, the the women travelers yes it's actually really curious and um, it kind of touches on my point where these women are almost representatives of the colonial power or colonial Britain in many ways when they go out they're often treated with a very high degree of respect um, and often curiously called sir because there isn't really another term that these women that can be known by so they kind of accept it and Mary Kingsley who I keep talking about she's absolutely outraged every time she gets called sir she says that at one point she falls in the river and she gets out and somebody says oh sir let me help you and she says she was so mortified at being called sir that the steep that she basically turned so red and angry that her clothes just turned into steam and all of the water came out because she was that angry at being called sir um so they're kind of received in that way as they're just like the white men they can't there's not really a distinction for them to kind of carve out a madam or something like that. They just get plonked in that same, oh, these white sirs are coming over. On the other hand, um, Maria Graham, who is another lady that I've looked at, she goes out to India and she meets an alive god, is what she calls it. And that's a boy of 12 years old, um, who in this case was the eighth member of his family to be kind of the vehicle of this deity's appearance on earth. And she says, oh, actually, he received us very politely. And uh, he says he was always pleased to see English people. And so for her, she's kind of in some ways struck that he was able to greet her in this polite way that she would deem 
almost acceptable back in England. So there's a two-way give and take, I think, there. She goes expecting a certain greeting and expecting a certain invitation. And he gives that and he says, oh, I'm always pleased to see white people. I'm always pleased to see English people, which I think is problematic on a number of levels because he is a, a vehicle for this deity and she feels superior to him. And in that society, I think is it, it kind of just demonstrates the wider the wider goings on of these women who go out and and view themselves in this way that yeah no matter if you're the vehicle of a deity I'm this white woman who's coming to have a look so I think in some ways obviously some of the natives that they encountered kind of knew what they were getting out of it and I imagine and to some respect took advantage of that so for Mary Kingsley she pays the people who take her on on the on the rapids and things like that she goes and rewards them like quite bountifully with certain money and I think that they knew that and so that they maybe in some respects they were just providing a service in many ways and knew how to overcharge it maybe in some respects or kind of get what they wanted out of it as well and show her the places they took her to certain villages that they wanted to that they maybe had a family affiliation with or something like that and she was then you know gave out money gave out treats gave out food and so there is definitely a relationship there that I'd and I think it's you know more complicated than to just say these women went out and expected a service and got it. I think on the reverse, a lot of the natives were already willing to give so much because they they ultimately had the power in those circumstances. Right. And did any of the, the native populations look at these women uh, romantically? Are there any stories of women having romantic entanglements with any of the native population? Yeah, uh, well, not that it's such romantic, but... Mary Pratt, who's a very famous um, historian of travel writing, she talks about how um, some of these white women travellers are invited to like local kings or local kind of lords houses and the kind of head of the house sometimes wants to make them his his wife and they absolutely refuse and they say no I can't do that I'm going back to England like some of them are unmarried some of them are married so that obviously you know, they can say well I've already got a husband but for a lot of them, they do have to kind of um, say, no, I won't stay here and I won't be your wife. I guess, you know, there would be a lot of like enjoyment and they're offering quite a lot because maybe some of these women are just the daughters of doctors back in England. They're not, you know, princesses or anything like that. So relatively speaking, out in these other countries, they would they would live an absolute life of luxury. But so there's interesting that often they're trying to be made these wives and they have, they often refuse. But I don't know of any uh, women who said, oh, yeah, actually, I'll trade in my doctor's daughter f- position for your wife. But perhaps it did happen. Right, right. And um, have you uncovered any reasons as to why not only women, but why people travel? Um, the reason I ask you this is because I was hoping to get your thoughts on modern travel. Um, the travel industry has boomed over the last, let's say, 50 years or so. And mass tourism is now not only a reality, but it's actually turning into a bit of a problem for places like, say, Amsterdam or Dubrovnik or Venice. You know, these really mm-hmm. small but very beautiful cities. Also places of natural beauty like Fifi Island Beach, for example, in Thailand, which is the the beach where the film the beach was filmed um, and after years of campaigning they've had to close the beach because thousands of tourists every day are essentially destroying it not on purpose of course um so i guess my question is do you have you uncovered any answers as to why 
we travel because it seems to me that if people are offered the opportunity to travel they take it um and as a travel historian have you or do you ever think about the causes and the consequences of modern travel and mass tourism yeah i mean for a lot of these women actually it it came down to knowledge more than anything i think and they wanted to contribute to the scientific understandings of what what the terrain is like even just the mundane like what do they what do they eat what do they use how is their transport what's their kind of just their way of living like and it so it was often presented as kind of just a research trip more than a holiday um by the end of the period these women were traveling for holidays as we might understand them or vacations but definitely at the start it was not for that it was about knowing and it was about conquering and bringing a civilizing process unfortunately as they would deem it and they would call it to these people and to try and take religion as well often so I think that was more what travel was about then Um, but obviously as I say it does change more because it's then more about curiosity and seeing it for yourself and also the climate I think a lot of the time a lot of people report for health reasons you know my asthma cleared up as soon as I went in this nice hot tropic country and you know not the cold rainy parts of the northeast or anything like that so I guess with the, with the pull of other different like ideas such as like nice weather and nice food and scenery and the picturesque discussions of like scenery and the picturesque become a big thing in the later part because we have the, obviously the, the enlightenment going on in England which is all about enjoying the beauty and simplicity of nature and in industrial Britain at that time there's not a lot left unless you go really to the tippity top of Scotland or somewhere like that so I guess these women are going out to these places that are not industrialized and they're not thick with smoke and stuff like that to see this picturesque and this untouched beautiful scenery that the likes of Joseph Addison talk about so I think that's maybe what we still go for in modern times to answer your question on modern travel is we do want to escape we want to go somewhere different and we want to see things and I think in many ways we're just the same okay great and um let's move on to the researcher recommendations so can you please give us your first recommendation for further reading i can so shirley foster and sarah mills have published an anthology of women's travel writing um and so this is essentially a collection of snippets of different women's travel writing um the ladies that i mentioned or that i've looked at are all can all be found in here but it also it's a good springboard for looking at other women's travels to different places you know beyond what I've mentioned as Africa and Asia um my second one would be Mary Russell's and the title is the blessings of a good thick skirt women travelers and their world and the title actually comes from a quote by Mary Kingsley who I've been talking about and she talks about the blessings of a good thick thick skirt against the likes of mosquitoes and the prickly heat of Africa which is really interesting So in that one, Mary is looking particularly at women travellers and the different challenges of all the benefits to women travellers. You know, as I was saying, kind of being able to see things that the men cannot, Mary really goes into detail on that. And then my last one would be more generally, holistically titled Travel Writing by Carl Thompson, published in 2011. This is a kind of just a complete, well-rounded work, Um, not just women travellers in this one, this is all about travel, travel writing in over a very long time period, the longer than the time period I look at. So that would be very good for all aspects of travel writing that you might be interested in. 
uh, but he does, does, does still, still devote a little bit of time to women so you can have a little look there okay amazing hannah thank you very much for coming on the podcast i wish you all the best with the future of your research thank you thank you for listening to this episode if you have enjoyed it please do us a massive favor and tell all of your friends about the hardcore humanities podcast you could also give us a good rating or review and follow us on social media And don't forget to check out our researcher recommendations. Until next time, ciao for now.